It is so good to be able to look about over the audience and to see our membership at Pippin and to see eager faces who are excited about meeting for the purpose of worshiping God. And certainly as we come together tonight, again, I'd like to express thanks to Ronald Strong for filling in last Sunday evening. And certainly tonight as we continue a series we started a number of weeks ago now, we come to the fifth installment of this series looking at world history. I realize that maybe in, in school, as you think back to those days, maybe history was more of a favorite subject of some than of others. But despite any of that, whether it was one of our favorites or not, it's rather remarkable to give thought to the degree to which history speaks about the nature that there is a God in heaven. And He has orchestrated the affairs of time in such a way to bring about the facts and the natures of His will. In fact, He expressly told that to Daniel. So tonight, as we continue that series of lessons, if you would be turning to the book of Daniel, a moment ago it was read from the seventh chapter of that book, and we will look at that particular chapter again in just a moment. But we also will look at a few other chapters as well of that very noble major prophet. By way of introduction, the thoughts on this opening slide, I would hope would be reminders at least about the nature of how much confidence you and I can have in God's existence and the confidence that is detailed to us in the book of Daniel. You'll notice in particular that in Daniel 8 verse 16, it is expressly said, and God Himself speaking said, Inform Daniel about the things that are indicated in these visions he's been having. We've studied about some of these visions that Daniel had, and he was perplexed as to what they meant. And God himself told the messenger, the angel, inform Daniel what all of this means. Isn't it remarkable that all that was written down? And you and I today can still be blessed with the character and the revelation of what it was that we now read in the book of Daniel. As you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, the prophecies in the book of Daniel in some sense are some of the most extensive and far-reaching in any of the Old Testament. And they speak volumes about the fact there is a God in heaven and He's preparing the world for the coming of His Son, which of course from that time was yet in the future. We today live in the reality it happened about 2,000 years ago, but God prepared things so that it would go the way that He expected that it needed to go. As our series continues, we're going to see that even developed in some rather explicit ways. For tonight, we come to the fifth installment in the series and as we study that, let's review briefly. Isn't it true that to this point, we have seen a number of things, and if I were to point to a picture, this is in essence what we've seen. In the second chapter of the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, had a dream. And ultimately, as that dream was not only revealed to Daniel, but the interpretation as well, explicitly we notice, it was a multifaceted metallic image. It had a head of gold, arms and a breast of silver, a midsection and thighs of brass, calf region of iron, but the feet were a mixture of iron and clay. And one by one, as those things have at least been discussed by us so far, we have also found that each one of them was representative of a kingdom, a civilization of men, if you please. In fact, as we've looked at all of that, we might notice that God elaborated on that even further when Daniel had some visions in chapter 7. One by one, beasts came up from the sea, and as Daniel looked at each one of them, 
we have a record in chapter 7 of not only what Daniel saw, but ultimately we appreciate, of course, the significance and correlation back to chapter 2. First of all, Daniel saw a lion, but it was no ordinary lion for it had the wings of an eagle. In addition to that, we appreciate that the wings ultimately were plucked, and that was significant in that it was a particular kingdom. But not only that, you notice that there were other things, for we also saw a bear. But again, it was no ordinary bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth. And as we appreciated the significance of that bear, it too was a kingdom. It was to follow that lion. You'll notice as you looked at each of these pictures, we saw at the bottom left that there also in chapter 8 was a, a, a particular ram with two horns. Finally, as we appreciate the significance of all of this, we have seen this point. That golden section, that lion section, they were representative of Babylon. Following that was the silver section, which was the Medes and the Persians. And yet, just as surely as the ram had two horns, but the greater one came up last, that was the Persian Empire. It too, however, was not to be permanent or perpetual, for it was to give way to another one. The brass section was the Macedonian kingdom, the Grecian empire, the Greeks, if you please. And that notable horn that we saw on that he-goat was none other than Alexander the Great. One by one, as God revealed all of that to us, we studied that last time. And we appreciated, too, that the time came that that mighty goat, you'll notice on the bottom right-hand side, he trampled or at least conquered the, the ram. And that, again, was that Greek empire. If we revisit that previous slide, our attempts to describe those things have brought us to summarize there at the bottom. So far, we've seen three empires, but God wasn't finished. For you remember that in that image that Nebuchadnezzar saw beneath the brassy section, the bronze portion, there was an iron section. That'll be our subject tonight. What was the kingdom representative of the iron section? And what about the other features? What about the image that Daniel saw arise from the sea? What details and what specifics were it to tell us about some kingdom following that of the Grecian one? It is at this point we come to ask in a rather detailed fashion about all of that. And so let's fill in those details as not only we saw them in chapter 2, but also in chapter 7. As you and I revisit it again, think about with me that image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. Isn't it amazing that he saw an iron section? Now, it came far down in the image. It was the lower leg section. It was the calf region, if you please. And yet it was of iron. It was of iron. You'll notice at the top of that particular slide, You'll notice that there was an additional portion, though, and we might even make some observation about that while we're into it. The feet section, the lowest portion of that image, also had an iron component in it, but it was iron mixed with miry clay. And later in the Holy Word of God, in the book of Daniel, we're told that the two didn't mix very well. We'll have to see to, uh, later tonight what it was that that admixture indicated. But furthermore, as you'll notice rather interestingly, we'll keep in mind the fact that in Daniel chapter 2, each one of those sections represented a kingdom. And so we anticipate that that iron section 2 was yet another kingdom of men. 
as we turn over to chapter number 7, we have an additional description of that kingdom, and it's the very lesson text that Andrew read just a moment ago. Back to verse number 7 of Daniel chapter 6. It says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. Another beast rose out of that water. It was not like the lion we had, that Daniel had seen first. It wasn't like the bear he had seen second. It wasn't like the leopard that he saw third. This one was different. It simply says it was dreadful and terrible. It had strong, it was strong exceedingly. It had great iron teeth. Note the correlation. The section in the image of Nebuchadnezzar had an iron portion to it. This one had iron teeth. It goes on to say it devoured and break in pieces, and it stamped the residue with the feet of it. At this point, might we at least appreciate. At the top left is again the same picture we've seen before, but you'll notice, please observe the iron section with me, the lower portion of the leg region. As you look over to the top right... I freely confess that there isn't nearly enough description in this chapter 7 to know exactly what kind of a beast Daniel saw. The earlier ones, we at least had an idea. It was a bear or a lion or a leopard. This time, all that Daniel tells us is it was dreadful, terrible, exceedingly strong. And later in the chapter, other descriptions not unlike the same are given again. May I ask, in a moment, we're about to appreciate that something about this image, something about this beast caught Daniel's attention unlike any of the ones preceding it. That leads me to appreciate or at least to suspect that it was unlike any beast Daniel had ever seen. Maybe it was something like a rather amazing dinosaur-like figure. We just don't know. At the very least, it captured Daniel's attention amazingly. You'll notice also it says it had great iron teeth. Furthermore, it devoured and broke in pieces. Nothing was able to stand before it victoriously. It triumphed over everything that came against it. Keep in mind, that's the beast that Daniel saw. As you appreciate it, you'll notice it had ten horns. Now that surely made it unlike any kind of animals that Daniel had ever seen. Ten horns. And not only that, the next verse goes on to say this. Daniel said, I considered the horns. It says, there came up among them another little horn. In the existence of the ten horns, another one came up in its midst. As Daniel observed the growth and the presentation of it, it says in verse number 8, three of the previous horns were plucked up as a result of the appearance of the new one. And not only that, this horn had eyes like the eyes of a man. And finally, it says it had a mouth that spoke great things. I'm sure each of us are a bit intrigued as we contemplate those horns and the appearance of one that was able to speak, a horn that in fact spoke great things and had eyes like those of a man. As we wonder about the appearance of this new kingdom and the appearance of that which was represented by this, Let's continue our presentation. Could I ask you to note the bottom right figure? Here is a close-up of some horns, and you'll notice one of them is a very notable horn and has a mouth on it, able to speak great things. As you look at all of those things with me, might we begin to ask about the meaning of some of these things? 
this fourth kingdom, the details of it, the characteristics attached to it. In history, we appreciate this. Each of these kingdoms that to this point God has revealed, first there was the Babylonian, and if we could go ahead and look at one other picture, we'll revisit this slide in just a moment. But you'll notice that one by one, all of the sections of that image that Nebuchadnezzar saw were representative of kingdoms. And I've even placed dates on this if you're able to read them. The Babylonian Empire rose to prominence in 609 or so B.C. It did so by the efforts of Nebuchadnezzar and it did so as it began to reign supreme over Assyria and the entirety of that section of the world. Babylon conquered Egypt, the mighty Egyptian empire at the famous Battle of Carchemish. And at this point, you might notice, however, it ran its full scheme by 539 B.C. As great as Babylon was, you'll notice it lasted far less than even a century. In 539 B.C., the Persians, however, conquered Babylon and they became the ruling empire, if you please. And you'll notice that from 539 to 331, a little over two centuries, they held sway. They, in fact, had a number of circumstances in which the Old Testament informs us. Some Old Testament kings were, in fact, Persian in their character. You and I, as we study books involving Darius, and as we study books involving Xerxes and others, they at least began to lead us to even recognize some of the names of the Persian monarchs. However, after them came Greece, the brassy section of that image. Again, with the work of Alexander the Great in 331 B.C., and shortly thereafter, they became the ruling empire. And you'll notice again, until 168, they held sway over the empire of the world. No one was a match for Greece then. But that brings us to the lesson tonight. Greece finally gave way to another there was another empire that ultimately ruled supreme over them. And you'll notice already in the iron section, it was none other than the empire of Rome, the Roman Empire. God had detailed to Daniel long before those events explicitly came to pass about the appearance of empires one after another. And as we come to Rome, that's where our focus shall be tonight. Maybe you remember studying about the Roman Empire when you had history in school. Maybe you and I know from the New Testament that there's much we already know about them. As you think about the Roman Empire, you may already notice they lasted the longest of any of these empires listed so far. From AD, or rather from BC 168 all the way to 476 AD, Rome will rule the world. She'll do so with majesty often with cruelty, and she'll do so with directness and with great discipline. As we study about Rome tonight, let's revisit those earlier slides and put some additional thoughts upon it. The rise again of the Roman Empire. You did notice with me as we appreciated that iron section. One thing you and I know about iron is, unlike gold and unlike silver, those metals are extremely precious, but they're brittle. They are not hard by and large, but that's not like iron. When you and I think about iron, at least in the vein, we consider that it can be made something extremely lasting and something extremely hard, perhaps indicative of the longer-lasting character of the Roman Empire. You'll notice also at the top of that slide, 
Another thing we could say is Daniel saw this beast arise and it was dreadful and it was terrible. The Roman Empire was the best military known on earth at the time. Again, no one was able to mess with Rome. She was cruel. She was harsh. She was extremely strong. You and I have perhaps remembered from our study of history a number of the features of its leaders like Julius Caesar and like Trajan and Vespasian and like a number of the other Roman generals. They were extremely good in many ways at what they did. Surely in light of all of that, it seems to me fair to at least pause for a moment with a lesson. Put yourself for a moment in Daniel's position. He was, in fact, told by the God of heaven, one by one these kingdoms are going to come. And this last one in particular so far we've seen was terrible, dreadful. So much so that Daniel is ultimately going to ask God about this one. Think about what it was like to be a Christian living beneath these empires, especially this last one. By this time, something remarkable was going to happen. Doesn't that at least tell us that life on this earth isn't intended by God to be always a paradise? It's going to have its hardship and its troublous times, and in fact, it's going to be difficult. You and I know what this last empire was going to do to the very Son of God. We know what was going to happen to the very one called Jesus of Nazareth, and He lived beneath this empire. And we remember what tragedy He faced. Isn't it a reminder that this earth is not our home. As faithful servants of God, we look for a better place than this one. We look for a place where peace and righteousness dwells. Wasn't that the message of 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 and following? We long for the place where righteousness dwells. Surely in light of those things, you understand with me that our journey rather rapidly continues. After these initial thoughts, look about the middle of that slide and let's now cast a strong spotlight on what we know from the New Testament days about this empire. By the time we reach Luke chapter 3 verse 1, there are the listing of several Roman kings. The time that Daniel predicted, the time that God predicted to Daniel, it had come to pass. Rome was ruling the world by the time the New Testament opens. And yet you and I know well what Rome did. Think about the way they punished certain individuals. A most heinous way to die. Crucifixion, really? You and I have perhaps in our mind's eye seen images of what Romans did to people who were criminals and what they did to people who were lawless in their nature. They put them to death like that. Doesn't that indicate a little bit about the kind of society Rome was? Not only that, I would ask you to think about the activities that took place at the Colosseum in Rome. That was again one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Colosseum in Rome. I'm told, I've never visited myself, but I'm told that those who to this day can walk amidst that Colosseum and they can still see references to the events that took place on the floor of that Colosseum where they would allow individuals for entertainment to be put to death as they would in fact introduce lions in there and watch the lions tear them to shreds. They did that for entertainment. What a cruel society had become. What a rather bloodthirsty society it had become. And that's the very society that God through Daniel predicted it was going to be. 
as you look about the natures of it. The Roman Empire ultimately would last until 476 A.D. when finally the Byzantines conquered it. But ultimately, we noticed that of greatest interest was going to be the events that transpired in the days of that Roman kingdom. We'll see that in the next couple of lessons, by the way. But with it, could I ask you to note this? There was something very intriguing about the feet section of that image Nebuchadnezzar saw. It wasn't pure iron. It was iron mixed with clay. And in fact, chapter 7 and 8 tells us that they didn't mix. That made the feet very weak. They weren't nearly as strong as pure iron. Apparently revealed to Daniel was the fact that there was some element, some characteristic in the later stages of the Roman Empire that would lead to weakness. Something that would ultimately be a part of leading to her crumbling defeat. You'll notice at the bottom, one can only surmise since the Word of God didn't explicitly tell us what it was. I've long wondered, was it the immorality of the Roman Empire? Was it the ungodliness that reigned supreme? Was it some feature characteristic of her separation from God? I can't help but think so. A very interesting book, if you ever have a chance to look into it, is a book entitled The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. It was written by Edward Gibbon. It's a very long book, I should forewarn you, six volumes. As he details in that book the nature of what ultimately was a part of the Roman fall, he goes to great length to bring into bear the nature of events in ancient Rome indicative of her lawlessness, her bloodthirsty character, her ungodliness and her immorality, and he asserted that that at least had a part to play ultimately in what would lead to Rome's downfall. At this point, might we at least say this. We so far have looked at these features and we have looked at that particular idea, that particular image. Let me ask you to think about the vastness of the Roman Empire. I realize we've looked at pictures in previous lessons about the Babylonian, the Persian, and ultimately the Greek Look at how vast Rome was. Everything within the confines of that heavy dark line was ruled by Rome. Everything stretching from the northern sections of Africa all the way to the most western sections of Asia, almost the entirety in many ways of Europe. In fact, though it's a little bit off screen, even Great Britain was ruled by what today was Rome. Her empire was vast. By this point, you can begin to imagine in trying to take care of that much territory and to keep enemies at bay, it was an extensive demand. How did she last for so long? Another thing to notice, one of the finest types of government. Rome, you see, had a Roman Senate. Reminds us about a kind of Senate we have. But at least there was stability by virtue of that continuance in the Senate. Rome had it. And you'll notice the Roman Empire was centered in the boot-shaped area. That's Italy, of course. And Rome was centered roughly in the middle to just the, below the middle part of that Italian uh, country. As you look at Italy and appreciate the development in Rome, let's look at yet another picture. Because in the meaning, we still have more that we should at least consider. We've talked about the beast per se, but at this point might we notice it had ten horns. Uh, 
I'm sure in light of our expectation of the development of the Word of God, maybe those horns were somewhat significant. It would seem to me likely indicative of the following. If you look at that map with me, that again is a picture of the ancient Roman Empire, color-coded this time. Color-coded in the sense of identifying a number of major sections and primary portions of the ancient Roman Empire. I strongly suspect that as you look at all of this, that number 10 was indicative of the fact this empire was going to be vast and there was a large number of major portions and major sections within it. Perhaps it was precisely 10, depending on how you choose to group them or at least lump them together into a section. As you think about those 10, as you think about the municipalities that went with them, let's go back to our previous slide just a moment. You'll notice about the middle part of that particular slide, among those ten horns, there was a notable horn that arose in the midst of them. It arose apparently in the very reality of the other horns. I wonder what that horn represented. Keep in mind that it was extremely unusual in that it had the eyes of a man, or at least likened unto a man, and furthermore, it spoke great swelling things. As you and I give thought to a horn that speaks, or at least to a horn that had vision not unlike that of a human, may we keep in mind whatever that horn represented, it arose during the days of the Roman Empire because that was where those ten horns were. And not only that, it was that same dreadful beast that Daniel had already seen. By now, I'm sure all of us are more intrigued than ever what could that horn have represented and what might that horn have been? At this point, it would seem to me reasonably clear that it refers to this. As you and I give thought to what arose within the days of the Roman Empire, and as we give thought to what it was in that empire that was likened unto a man, and what furthermore spoke great swelling things, and furthermore lasted far beyond the Roman Empire. May I draw your attention to a verse later in Daniel chapter 7 as it gave thought to the reality of this horn. I'll begin reading in verse number 20 of Daniel chapter 7. And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake great, very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. As more information is given, we now learn this. Notice again, it now is directly likened unto a man. It spoke great things, and we're told that three of those earlier horns were taken and plucked up by the reality of the appearance of this one. Furthermore, it says in verse number 21, I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Whatever that horn represented, it opposed the things of God. It made war against the servants of God. It made war against the saints. And not only that, it says it had victory. It prevailed. Verse number 22. Might I ask you to notice as you look at all those verses, something interesting, it seems to me, is presented to us. It says in verse number 20 that its look was more stout than his fellows. That suggests that whatever was the character of this horn, it outlasted the Roman Empire. 
it was stronger than the Roman Empire in the sense that it continued beyond it. It was more stout than its fellows. Having said all of that, it seems to me that that's representative of the papacy. It's representative of the reality of what ultimately became the Roman Catholic Church. Let's see how that might be. First, when did the Catholic Church begin with the reality of the papacy? It sprang out of the Roman Empire. Over the period of a few centuries, the Roman Empire had reached a rather significant height and the strength therein was notable. The papacy sprang board right out of reality of the Roman Caesars. The government of the Caesars ultimately led to the reality of the structure of the papacy in the Roman Empire. That linkage, notice, continues until this day. The Roman Empire is long since gone, having been relegated to the dustbins of history. After 476 A.D., Rome was no more, but the papacy has continued onward. Now, quite frankly, it's a bit of a discussion as to when the first pope was appointed. Some will argue it was Boniface in 606. May I suggest to you, though it's clear, the basic framework of the papacy had begun long before that. Secular history attests to it. Although, as you and I give thought to it, if that be a consideration, let's look at some of these truths. I would ask you to notice the papacy has long since been strong and in fact it continues in strength until our very day, well over 1,500 years beyond the removal of Rome. Not only that, what about making war with the saints? Was there ever a time in history when the very nature of the papacy, the Roman Catholic Church made war against Christians, made war against those who were allegiant and loyal to the God of heaven through Jesus Christ our Lord? We know that answer is yes. Think about the Inquisition that took place in the 11th century. Think about the other features where myriads were put to death based on the accusations and the character of the demands of Rome. May I ask you to consider the ravages due to the Duke of Alva that occurred even a number of centuries following that 11th century. History records all of these things. The papacy was behind all of it. When you give thought to that, could it have been the case then that centuries earlier God revealed to Daniel that there was going to be a little horn? Think about what the little horn did. He spake great things. What does the Pope do? What has he done over the centuries? He claims to speak ex cathedra. That's just a fancy Latin term that means he speaks by inspiration from God. The Pope claims to speak the very words of God. Really? What greater things could there be to claim than that? To speak great swelling things? What else did it say back in verse number 8? It says three of the first horns were plucked up. History records something very interesting. When the final declaration was ultimately made for the assertion and the reality of the papacy, history records that three districts were consumed by and taken by the establishment of the papacy. That's very intriguing, don't you think? Seems to exactly harmonize with the statements of Daniel chapter 7. As you come near the bottom of that slide with me, let's turn to yet another one. Because there seems to be even more information provided. I paused a moment ago in reading at the end of verse 21, but let's look at verse 22. It says, until the ancient of days came, 
and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Now that's a continuation of the sentence already begun. But it, notice it says, until the ancient of days. How long will the Roman Empire, or rather I should say, how long will the Roman church continue on earth? As you and I hope for the triumph of the truth of God, as we hope for matters to ultimately turn in the direction of the truth of God remaining supreme around the earth, and maybe Catholicism and all of its error to be replaced, it appears that such a hope is not reasonable. For God says, until the ancient of days comes, this Catholic Church, with all the popery that goes with it, is going to continue. Who is the ancient of days? None other than Jesus Christ. Until He comes again, apparently this Catholicism is going to continue. It's going to persist. It's going to remain. And as sad as that may appear, God revealed it to Daniel. As we read on, He says in verse number 23, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth. That's this Roman Empire we've been studying tonight, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. Rome had her day. She's now long gone. And yet out of her came this, this single horn that still has a great emphasis until our very day today. I would ask you to notice that this discussion of the Roman Empire and the discussion of the Roman Catholic Church and the papacy, this isn't the only place in the Word of God this is found. In the New Testament, none captures their attention more clearly than the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians. There, Paul revealed all of this again. As the God of heaven told Paul these, those things were still going to happen, it harmonizes together in such a remarkable way. Our God's in control of the features and affairs of time, isn't He? As you and I come to that closing thought of our lesson tonight, doesn't that tell us about the reality of false teaching? As sad as it continues to be, as sad as it has always been, how often does the Word of God remind us about the appearance of and the reality of it? In 1 John 4, 1 we read, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God. How clearly did Peter state it like this in 2 Peter chapter 2, when on that occasion he said, But as there were false prophets among the people, even so there shall be false teachers among you. Now that was written in the midst of the first century, reminding them as well as us about the appearance of and the reality, as sad as it is, of those who choose not to be true to the Word of God. Thanks be unto God that you and I can rightly divide the word, 2 Timothy 2.15, that we can implant it in our heart in the words of Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3, and we can, of course, live faithful until death, Revelation 2, verse 10, under the banner of the truth of God. For it still is true, isn't it, that ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, John 8.32. As we come then to the close of that particular slide, it brings us to a few brief words of conclusion. Tonight, the fourth section has been the Roman Empire. But out of it was to come a lasting reality, that little horn that would speak great things. And to this day, of course, we realize still its continuance in its existence. May I submit to you that our series is by no means finished. 
even though we've looked at the sections of that, don't forget with me, there was something else in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We each remember what it was. It was a stone that crushed or that, that uh, collided into the image. We need to turn our attention to the stone. We need to see what that represented, and we need to ask what it was that God was revealing, not only about that stone, but about other features, even in the book of Daniel, about the continuance through time. I hope we each continue to be fascinated by the movement through time. It's a compelling record. Some have likened it to a golden thread in which God weaves His message and His will through the realities of time. Remember, there was a reason for all of this. Why did God allow Greece and Persia and Babylon and Rome to rule the way He did? He was preparing for something. Let's continue our studies. We see what that was He was preparing. Tonight, my friend, may you and me alike think with urgency about the one in whose hands we dwell. Our youngsters sing the song, He controls the whole world. He has the whole world in His hands. Isn't that true? We certainly have seen it in Daniel. He told exactly what empires were going to come. He told what character they'd have. In some cases, even told how long they'd last. And He's been right every time. Of course, we know He's always right. He's God. And aren't we thankful to serve Him? Tonight, if you aren't a faithful servant of His, don't leave this building in your current lost state. Maybe you've never become a Christian. Take care of that need tonight. Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. If we could assist you in that, we would joyously do it. If you have become a Christian but you're now wayward, You've lost sight of the grandeur and majesty of the kingdom of God and you'd like to return to your first love. Why not do it tonight? We would be honored to pray to God on your behalf. All we'd want you to do is ask us to do it. Confess those sins known publicly before us and God's promised to forgive them. If this very night we could be of help to anybody in the audience, don't delay, but why not come and do so at once while we stand and while we sing?